0: Revelation, and if you brought your Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation 21. We'll be starting in verse 9, or it's printed there in the bulletin for you. Revelation 21, 9 through uh, 27, hear the word of the Lord. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its. Uh, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing and glorious picture of the church and that her glory is your glory. And so, as we enter into this text, would you help us to see the wonders that are here for us, that we would um, better love and treasure you and honor your church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what we have here is, in a sense, a wedding processional. And in fact, just yesterday I was at a wedding, and, you know, the the processional had that, that sort of typical escalation to it you know first it's the groomsmen and the, and the bridesmaid and you know that was fine and then the flower girl and the ring bearer which is you know so charming they disarm everyone they are just the the ideal opener to the main act and then uh, in this instance you know before the bride came in they had closed the the double doors to the sanctuary and the music's crescendoing and then boom the doors flung open and there was the bride and and you know of course, she looked radiant, but I noticed as I looked across the aisle at the faces of the other guests that their faces were all lit up. Everyone was just, you know, smiling at her, and, and you know, bigger smiles than you normally see. You know, if you had seen those expressions on someone just on the street, you would turn to look and see, what are they looking at? The radiance of the bride was basically brightening everyone's faces. And, you know, that's actually a good way to think of John's vision here of the church and the effect that it should have on us. He is seeing a a portrait of a radiant bride of of us, the church of God. And if we can catch the vision, well, I think it will help us to honor the church more in our hearts and our lives, to, to better be the church that God has made us. And, and to be such a radiant church that the world can't help but take notice and look and be drawn to the, to the light of, of God. And so I want to talk this morning about how the church is to be a radiant bride and a beacon of light to the world, a, a radiant bride and a beacon of light. And we'll do that by, by moving through five aspects of the church's nature that we see here in this, in this passage. And so, if you're taking notes, here are the, f- the five aspects of the church's radiance that we'll be walking through. One, we are the ransomed. Second, we are the glorious. We are the safe. Fourth, we are the mighty, and fifth, the pure. We are the ransomed, the glorious, the safe, the mighty, and the pure. And it is a beautiful vision. So let's look at the first one. We are the ransomed. We see that in verse 9. We are those who have been brought uh, bought with the precious blood of Christ. The groom in this passage is always referred to as the lamb. You see it there in verse 9, then in the middle of the vision in verse 14, and then at the end of the vision in verses 22 through 27. Everywhere the groom is mentioned, it is he's called the lamb. And so that, that The phrase, the Lamb, is referring to Christ as our sacrificial atonement. And so, in the marriage context that, that we have here in this passage, we can think of His blood as, in, in a sense, a, a dowry, you know, the purchase price for His blood. And, and the Scriptures tell us to think of it this way. 1 Peter 1, 18 says that we were ransomed or, or purchased or bought back with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are not our own, but we were bought with the price. And it's the price that it's referring to is the blood of Christ. We were slaves to sin and death and Satan, and Christ redeemed us by His blood, by His own blood. And by this we know that we are a deeply beloved bride. Christ is not a reluctant bride. Groom. He is a desirous, even jealous groom who loves us. And so, before we see anything else about the church in this vision, right away we are planted in the heart of the gospel that we are deeply loved by God, bought at the price of his beloved Son. We are ransomed, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are deeply loved loved. And so that's the, the, the first nature we see is that we are the ransomed, and with that, the beloved. And this brings us to the next aspect of, of the church's nature, is that we are the glorious. We are glorious. We see this in verses 10 through 11. When we read that the bride is actually the new Jerusalem, so if you, you know, think back to those double doors in the sanctuary, the doors open and what you see is a city, a big cubed city, and that's what we're looking at now. We're looking at a city, and it says that the city has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. And, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen uh, jasper mentioned in Revelation. Earlier in uh, chapter 4, verse 3 we see a vision of the throne of god and we read this that he who sat there had the appearance of jasper in carnelian christ had the appearance of jasper and now here the church has the appearance of jasper it has the glory of god well what is the glory of god and how does the church have it well Uh, what is the glory of God? God's glory, in in His own words, is all His goodness. It's all His goodness. There's the scene in the book of Exodus where Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's going to receive the law of God, and he says to God, show me your glory. And God says to him, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then when God passes by Moses, and he's hid Moses in the cleft of a rock, lest Moses see him and die. He says this, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's glory is all His goodness. It is the unified diamond of His attributes, if you will. And and Moses can't even look at it, lest he die. Merely hearing God's voice causes him to come down the mountain with a radiant face, the text says. Now, how is it then that the church has that glory? The answer is The church is born of God. We see in these verses that the church is descending, is coming from God, having the glory of God. The church has the glory of God because it is born of God. This is why God would say something like, "'Be holy as I am holy.'" Or, for example, the logic uh, that you, uh, that's all throughout First John when you're talking about love and, and sin and righteousness, uh, for example, it says, no one, has, no one who has been born of God goes on sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He's talking about spiritual DNA, if you will. The church has God's glory, God's likeness, because it's born of him. You know, the same way that if you have children, that your children, you know, they have your ears, or your nose, or your, your mannerisms. They, they look like you. Well, the church looks like God because it has been born of God. You know, in the church where I grew up, uh, we had this, this ritual around baptisms that was really sweet, where after the baptism we would all stand in this big circle in the sanctuary, And the baptized person, you know, the one who's just been born of water and spirit, so to speak, uh, is standing there with us. You know, he or she is, is soaking wet, and we would sing these words over them. We love you with the love of the Lord. We love you with the love of the Lord. We see in you the glory of our King. And we love you with the love of the Lord. And then the next stanza would say, please love us with the love of the Lord. Please see in us the glory of the King. Why would we sing that? Because we recognize ourselves as children of God, and thus having all the goodness of God. And it sets the whole course for how we relate to each other, that we affirm the glory of God in each other, that we have eyes to see the fruit of the Spirit coming forth, the change that is happening by nature of our regeneration, and we love each other accordingly because we are the children of God, and God is love. The church is nothing less than those who by grace through faith share in God's glory, which means there is nothing ordinary or trivial about us We're not a a cluster of annoying people that we have to go to church with. (laughs) We have the glory of God, and together share in all His goodness. Would that we have eyes to see it and to love each other. Well, the description continues. So we've seen how the church is the ransomed and the glorious. And now third, we see that the church is safe. We are the safe. We see this in verses 12 through 14, where we see that the city is made up of, of 12 great high walls, arranged like Israel encamped in the wilderness, which is uh, you know north, east, southwest, uh, three tribes on, all surrounding the tabernacle. That's the arrangement. And it's an interesting juxtaposition because Israel was wallless in the wilderness. Which, which meant it was, it was vulnerable. That's why they needed the, the pillar of, of fire to protect them by night. In ancient times, walls around cities were for safety. You know, they kept out plunderers and murderers and attackers. And so if your walls were strong, you were strong. Walls are, are an image of, of health and security, something like our modern day uh, GDP. You know, how is a nation doing? Well, in ancient times, Look at its walls. That's how you know. And here, the walls are in very, very good shape, and they have angels guarding them. But now here is what's interesting. The walls are resting on the foundation of the apostles. So The, wa- the walls are associated with the tribes, which come first in the biblical story, but they are resting, uh, they are resting on the apostles. Rather, so it's rather than the other way, the apostles resting on the tribes, chronologically, it's it's flipped. What's going on here? Well, the message of the apostles in the New Testament was essentially this: that the promises of God for Israel are fulfilled in Christ. That all the promises that Adam and Noah and Abraham and his sons and the tribes and so on, all those promises, all those things they were banking on, rested and found their yes in Christ, and are extended even to the Gentiles, we learn, as, uh, as the New Testament unfolds. And so, what we have here in this picture of the walls on the foundations of the apostles is the full people of God, Jew and Gentile, rested in strength on the message of the apostles, that Christ is the true Messiah, that Christ is the promised one. You know, this makes me think of Jesus' famous interchange uh, with the, the disciples where he asks, you know, who do people say that I am? And you know, they say, uh, basically, everyone thinks you're a prophet. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Barjona." For, ble- for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The rock is Peter's confession. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the rock on which the church is built? It is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so to the degree that the church maintains its confession that Jesus is the Christ, that all God's promises find their yes in Him, to that degree its walls are strong. Such that even when we feel, as we often do, like wanderers camped in the desert, vulnerable, in fact, we are strong, secure, impenetrable, guarded as by a pillar of fire, as by angels. We are safe. We can go out in safety, and we can proclaim our confession and know with certainty that the gates of hell will not prevail against our own, because our own stretch 1,500 miles into the air, as it were, We are safe and secure and guarded. So, we've been building this portrait. We've seen so far that we are the ransomed, the glorious, the safe. Next, we see that we are the mighty. The mighty. We see this in verses 15 through 21. The basic thrust here of, of the measuring of the city and, and the, the list of the jewels is to show the grandeur of the city. And the measuring uh, has as its background Ezekiel chapters uh, 40 through 48. You might write those down and go read them later and see all the connections. I'll add one more actually to, the, to that list. Isaiah 60 is another background text of ours. So, if you want to do some deeper study, you could go read all those. But in those Ezekiel chapters, what we're, what we're getting is a, a vision of Israel's restoration after the exile. You know, they, though they existed as an exiled people, what they were learning was that a, a mighty future was before them, one where they were uh, established in the land and, and have expanded and are exalted rather than what they were at the time, which was dispersed among the earth and enslaved. And, you know, this is true for the church. we are dispersed among the earth and sometimes feel like the few. We are the mighty. We have a a vision here of something like an anti-tower of of Babel. You know, the wall uh, described here is enormous. This cube is enormous. It's 1,500 miles long, wide and high. You know, 1,500 miles is about the distance from, from here to Boston. It could get you to Fargo, North Dakota, if you're looking for a vacation spot. That's 1,500 miles. So a huge, huge city. And it, its walls are 72 yards thick. It is more incredible than anything man could ever build. And it has come from God. You know, the project of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11 was for man to build a tower to reach to the heavens. It was an exercise of pride. Well, here we see a city built by God coming down to earth, God and man meeting, but by God's condescension and not man's self-exaltation. We have a picture of something mighty. And this view is, is further reinforced by uh, the, the possibility that this list of jewels, uh, and there's some de- debate about this, uh, but there's the possibility that this list of jewels purposefully corresponds to uh, the constellations of the zodiac, which in ancient uh, astro- astrology each had an associated gem- gemstone. And John's list of these gemstones, is in the exact reverse order of the zodiac, which could be a nod to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, where heaven comes to earth. You know, the stars of heaven, as it were, are now adorning the foundation of the church, which the church is also here pictured as a priestly community wearing the the breastplate of Aaron that uh, that had the 12 jewels on it uh, again reinforcing this idea of, of a heaven-come-to-earth aspect of this vision, because the tabernacle was a, a, a picture of the heavenly things. So, all of that to say, and I'd be hesitant to make theological points on, on these details of the, jo- of the stones, um, but well, I would be if they didn't agree with Jesus' very clear words about the nature of the kingdom. Here's some things Jesus has said about the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this city is stretching out so as to fill the earth, so to speak. Or whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. In the kingdom of God, the meek are the mighty. Heaven comes down to us, so that no one may boast. And so, even though the church is scattered abroad, we're called to live gentle and quiet lives, to be meek, lowly. That is our strength. By God's design, the strength of the kingdom is poverty of spirit, that Christ might be all in all, and Himself be our strength and our might. So, we are almost... Closing out the the portrait we have here, we've seen that we are the ransomed, the glorious, the safe, the mighty, and expanding. Lastly, we see that we are the pure. We are the pure. We see that in verses 22 through 27. You know, up until this point in the passage, we have seen what the bride has. She has God's glory. The city has high walls and foundations and jewels. And the language is really specific there, always using the word for has and having. But what she doesn't have is just as important as what she does have. She has no temple. And this is deeply surprising because Jerusalem is Jerusalem because the temple is in the midst of her But here there is no temple, and the force of this surprise comes through a little stronger in in the Greek. If you translated it woodenly, verse 22 would begin, and temple none did I see in her. You would certainly expect a temple to be in the midst of a city, and yet it isn't. And we are told plainly why. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And jesus said during his earthly ministry he's looking at the temple and he says in three days i will tear this temple down and rebuild it or i'll tear this temple down and in three days rebuild it and and he said that he was referring to his death and resurrection jesus eliminated the need for the temple by becoming the temple of god's people and so that's why you see no temple in this vision because jesus is the temple The walls of the inner sanctuary of the temple have become the outer walls of the city, and the whole city is sacred because God is in her midst, and God is the temple. And even on top of that, the New Testament teaches us that because we are in Christ and are His body, we are living stones in the temple, of the temple. We are the temple of God because we are the body of Christ. It's it's a mingling and a fusion and a mutual indwelling so that everything, everywhere, all the time is worship and communion with God. That is the picture of this city. This is a return to Eden where God walks in the cool of the day with His creation. There's no separation of sacred and profane. It is all sacred. And it's why His glory is there because His glory must depart from impurity but this is a pure and holy city. And because God's glory and holiness cannot dwell with impurity, there is one more other thing that we do not see in this city. We see it there towards the end of the passage. Nothing unclean, nor anyone who does what is false. This is the land of the pure and the worshipful. We are those who dwell with and in the holy God. Now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Purity is directly related to our mutual indwelling with Christ. The church must hold as an essential aspect of her nature her purity, her purity. My wife once attended a wedding where somebody accidentally spilled red wine all over the, red, all over the bride's dress <laughs> during the reception, and as you can imagine, it was an ordeal. <laughs> she was very upset. It seems to me that sin has become far from an ordeal in the church. The church has actually uh, has a habit of, of yawning at sin. Yeah, sin, whatever we all do it. Well, of course, we all do it, but that's not who we are. We should be as eager for purity as a bride is eager to keep her dress clean. We should embrace admonition. We should collectively desire holiness and collectively hate sin and call each other to repentance and to seek the purity of our church. And we should hold that as good and beautiful and right and even dignifying to seek the purity of the church. Purity should be to us a treasure that we have from God and protect and and pursue. So let us treasure the purity that we have from Him. And seek to guard it. Well, we have now our full portrait of this bride. And isn't she lovely? She's ransomed by the precious blood of Christ and thus bestowed with love and honor. She's glorious because she has the glory of God, all his goodness. She's safe and she's mighty. And she knows that she's safe and mighty in the Lord, so she is not fearful or brash, but she's confident and kind, gentle and strong. And she's pure. She knows she is one with God and is His temple, and she takes her whole body worship seriously. And for all of these reasons, she is radiant. And her radiance is a beacon. It serves a purpose. And so I want to close by saying a quick word on how to relate all of this, this portrait, to how we see ourselves as a community of faith and how we see the world. First, how we see ourselves as a community. Uh, Del Close was a a, a famous improv comedy instructor who uh, trained improv actors in basically making up one-act plays on the spot. From, from basically nothing, just a suggestion from the audience, and they would, they would go. And, and of course, this required a considerable tr- teamwork and trust. You know, it's vulnerable to be on stage with no lines, no plans, no props, nothing, and to make something from nothing. And so you really needed to lean on each other. And, and so he had this mantra that he would say to his, his actors, that he would repeat to them, and it was this, if we treat each other as if we are geniuses, poets, and artists, we have a better chance of becoming that on stage. In other words, instead of waiting for your scene mate to do something genius, you treat him like a genius, and he has a way of living up to your view of him. Well, we don't have to imagine what we are as a church. This is what we are. We are the radiant church. This is our new self. This is where we are going. And if we treat each other as radiant, we'll have a better chance of becoming that on earth. And by, that, by that, I don't mean that we pretend we don't have sin and that we don't frustrate each other. Of course we do. <laughs> where, there, where two or three are gathered, there is frustration. <laughs> but what I mean is we ought to learn To see with spiritual eyes, with the spiritual eyes that John has given us and to know, you know, who we really are together is this radiant church, this beloved, glorious, blood-bought bride of Christ. This is who we are. And if we hold that fast in our hearts, don't you think we would treasure each other? That we would honor each other, that we would love each other? that we would expect holiness from each other and encourage it, and we wouldn't be ashamed when somebody calls out sin in our lives, that we'd be deferential to each other. We would be about the business of beautifying each other in the way that we live. We would see in each other the glory of the King, and we would love each other accordingly. My friends, that's our calling. This is who we are. Let us live up to it. Secondly, what do you see when you look at the world? How does this all inform our relationship to the world? You know, we didn't talk much about it, and I think Nate's going to go into it more next week, but this passage says that the light of the church is like a beacon drawing the nations in for, for worship. They see glory, and they come to bring their glory. Do we see the world that way, as full of potential worshipers? of God? Madeline Engel is an author, and she has this quote where she says, "'We do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it.'" You know, she's not entirely right. There is an important prophetic element to the church's witness. We do have to correct the world. But on the whole, she is right. Jesus says, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would we be so commi- Would that we be so committed to the light that we find people pouring into the city of God to bring forth worship? My friends... God has made us a radiant bride. This is His doing. Let us honor each other as such. Let us seek God's grace to live up to our true nature. And in so doing, be a blessing to the nations and draw in their worship. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this vision of the church. Oh, that we would make progress in being this way. We thank You, Father, that this is fixed for us in Christ, that someday we will see this picture fully realized. Until then, strengthen us, guide us by Your Spirit, that we may show more and more all Your goodness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.